Welcome to 2038, the podcast where we interrogate predictions about the future. In 20 years, climate change will bring about the end of the nation state. This is Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright. The most important implications of climate change are not just environmental. They are also, maybe just as significantly, political. As climate change becomes harder and harder to ignore for the capitalist nation states and their elites who dominate the global order, which is clearly happening right now, how will they respond? The answer is a form of binding authority that can stabilize, as much as possible, the current global order by addressing the risks posed by climate change. This is Climate Leviathan, and we can see the drive for it not just in the capitalist leaders of the West who gather every once in a while in Copenhagen or Paris, but also in the groundswell of desperate hope that animates progressives all over the world every time there's a new climate summit. And it is enamored with utopian technical fixes that will somehow suck carbon out of the atmosphere or reflect the sun's radiation so we can keep going exactly as is. It's never going to work because it's unquestioningly capitalist when capitalism is the origin of much of the problem. My name is Jeff Mann, and I am a professor at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I direct the Center for Global Political Economy. My name is Joel Wainwright. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography at Ohio State University, and with Jeff, uh, wrote a book called Climate Leviathan, which we'll be discussing on today's show. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and I'm alarmed enough about climate change that I would welcome the Climate Leviathan. And I'm Max Reed, and I've spent the year obliviously emitting carbon, awaiting my awful future. From my perspective, you know, you see um, talk out there a lot of, um, especially on the left, about the kind of incompatibility of financial capitalism, industrial capitalism with the climate crisis. There's a lot of people who think basically this system cannot endure assaults of the scale that we're likely to see over the next couple of decades. And I know the recent IPCC report proposed that um, if we get up to 3.7 degrees of warming, that the the economic impacts will be something like $550 trillion, which is more wealth than exists in the world today. So I know that you both think that a, a capitalistic solution to the climate crisis is not a good solution, but you also think that it is the one that will emerge. Is that just because the interests of capitalism are too entrenched and too powerful now and that um, other alternatives won't be able to seize control of any of the any state power, any other kind of apparatus of power? That's a great question. Let's start with the recent IPCC report that you mentioned. It's an unusual one because typically the IPCC rolls out these uh, occasional reports that summarize the state of knowledge from the climate sciences. There have been five of these major reports so far. But the report that came out a couple of weeks ago was a little different. It was mandated after the Paris talks uh, because in Paris, the goal of the international climate negotiations was tweaked a little bit. For a long time, uh, international leaders have been saying that they'd like to make sure that the maximum mean global warming is not more than two degrees Celsius. And in Paris, after a long campaign, uh, I suppose we could call this a small victory for the left of the climate justice movement, they modified that. So they said that the maximum increase in mean annual temperature is 2 degrees Celsius, but we really want to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, that's not a binding goal, but that's the intention, at least, uh, as of the Paris Agreement. So then afterwards, the UNFCCC asked the IPCC to write a report that said, well, what will happen if we achieve 1.5 degrees Celsius, and what do we need to do to get there? And it's a pretty alarming report. I encourage everyone to take a look at it. What's particularly shocking is uh, the graph that shows how quickly we would need to decarbonize the global capitalist economy 
in order to actually pull off the shift down to a maximum 1.5 degree Celsius shift. I, I don't have any way of displaying it visually here, but imagine a graph that just basically plunges down right now, and that's what we have to do in terms of the global carbon pathway. So back to your question now, why are we so skeptical, so to speak, that capitalism can pull it off? Well, unfortunately, capitalism is a way of organizing a society that is oriented entirely towards the expansion and uh, accumulation of value in the form of money. That's a technical way of saying it is inherently expansionary. And right now, fossil fuels are by far the uh, cheapest and easiest way for firms and states to produce the electricity and power that powers the expansion of that global economy. So we have a, what we can call a fundamental contradiction. We have a global capitalist economy that needs growth, accumulation, and expansion. Uh, that capitalist economy everywhere is now managed by nation states where the elites who manage those states need to deliver some of the goods of that growth for their own domestic constituencies. But at the same time, the elites of the world recognize fully well that the scientists are right. I mean, the, to make a generalization, for the most part, the richest people in the world aren't the ones questioning the science. They recognize full well that the folks at the IPCC are telling the truth and we need to get on with decarbonizing the global economy. But the problem is how to do that collectively and fast. And uh, up until this point, they've utterly failed to coordinate their response. And Jeff and I think that uh, that's going to continue for a while, at least on the mitigation front. But the fact that they've been failing to rapidly mitigate carbon doesn't mean that they aren't in the process of shifting uh, towards a more collective process of uh, collaboration on, with respect to adaptation. And what Jeff and I describe as climate leviathan reflects what we describe as an adaptation of the political, a change in the very fundamental political arrangement of the world system. So admittedly, we don't really know what's going to happen. We'll be the first to admit to say that, you know, if you ask us what the world looks like in 2035, we, we can't give you a blueprint. No one can. So just to sort of pin you down a little bit on what, practically speaking, the climate leviathan future looks like, is it functionally a kind of super-powered World Bank or IMF-like structure that is essentially managing um, geoengineering and carbon capture programs throughout the world and which claims sovereignty beyond the power of nations to resist? Is it something like the UN? Is it something like a Chinese-led um, imperium that is dictating the rules for the, the sort of carbon rules for the entire globe? What, practically speaking, how does the, how does the climate leviathan take form? Well, actually, in the book, we lay out a kind of framework that, that would include, in some ways, uh, a leviathan. Or, uh, you might say a leviathan can take two forms. And one of them would definitely be what we nickname, for lack of a better term, climate Mao. And that, in some ways, might describe what you mentioned as a Chinese imperium. But certainly, whether or not it's, uh, it's specifically Chinese, um, the, the idea behind a climate Mao, which would be a sort of a Leviathan-like figure, is a, is a situation in which it is true that the sovereign authority would be exercised in a non-capitalist manner, but nonetheless a very powerful, if nonetheless in some cases legitimate authority is exercised to make this happen. But the more important prediction, for lack of a better term, even though I think both Joel and I are a bit iffy on that word, um, but the form that we're sort of more interested in talking about is a capitalist climate leviathan, which would definitely take uh, a form maybe closer to something like you described as, a, as something like an IMF or World Bank or WTO, but with more, uh, more authority. The power basically, like leviathan, 
to, to make the decisions on the carbon front, you might say. And in some ways, just like when Thomas Hobbes wrote his book Leviathan way back in the 17th century, and he was desperate to stop the English Civil War or avoid the one that he thought was coming, he felt like the Leviathan power was necessary because it would draw the boundaries around what was allowable, prevent chaos, and inside that order, people would have freedom. It wouldn't be a political freedom, but it would be a freedom nonetheless. And I think the, the, the capitalist climate leviathan that Joel and I are trying to describe is in some ways uh, an idealized form of this at a planetary scale, where leviathan would have the power and the legitimacy to make the authoritarian decision on climate front, on the things that will save the planet. It will arrogate to itself the claim to be able to stand for all of humanity. And under that, an order will exist that you know might contain something like what are currently nation states. It might contain a variety of, of social arrangements. We, of course, as Joel said, wouldn't want to presume to say, but we do believe that, that the form of authority that is increasingly deemed to be necessary will be one that takes a Leviathan-like shape. So in a situation like this, and I recognize that you guys are wary of making specific predictions, but what's the fun of a podcast called 2038 if we're not <laughs> making specific predictions? So I, one thing I'm wondering about with Climate Leviathan is how you guys envision uh, the Leviathan deriving its authority. You know, it, obviously, you know, especially when we're talking about Hobbes, we have to be thinking about force. So there has to be some kind of military order here. Is this the kind of thing that more powerful nation states are going to enforce on smaller ones? Is it the kind of thing that there is an outside force? Um, what prevents somebody from trying to escape the climate leviathan or a, a polity of some kind, a municipality, a, a nation state? It's another great question. Uh, first of all, uh, when we speak of leviathan, we don't necessarily mean a thing <laughs> uh, such as a specific state institution, but we're, we're describing or trying to describe a political condition whereby we have a, a form of sovereignty which is genuinely planetary. Which brings me back to your question. Uh, every state that we know of in the history of the world has always involved, uh, to a certain degree, force, rule by force. Uh, in fact, uh, Max Weber famously defined the state as a political community or a human community uh, where uh, uh, ensemble uh, of uh, actors have a monopoly over the use of force. However, we all know that uh, no state can rule for any length of time exclusively by force. There have to be means by which to persuade people to actively consent to the form of rule that exists. Uh, Antonio Gramsci calls this hegemony. So the question then restated might go something like this. What sort of ideological or theoretical or, or political qualities might the hegemony of a climate leviathan express? And I think that what Jeff and I would point to is there would have to be a shift, not just in the scale of rule, but in its uh, ideal subject or its, its purpose. So one of the qualities that we see in all modern nation states is that the state claims to, just claims, I emphasize, claims to do what's best for its people. And its people are typically defined by uh, uh, territory, race, culture, etc., language. Well, in the case of what we're describing as a planetary sovereign, that would shift to be described as life on Earth or something akin to it. So imagine it's the year 2038. And uh, we're at something that looks kind of like what the UN building looks like today. Maybe it's not in New York anymore. Maybe it's in Beijing or someplace else. But regardless of where it is, whoever is standing at the podium and speaking doesn't begin by saying, uh, welcome all you representatives of the different peoples of the world. Uh, we're here to make sure there's peace between our countries. But rather says, 
as we all know, in the midst of the great extinctions that are occurring and the great migrations of humans that are happening and so on and so forth, what we have to remember is we're all on this planet together and we're here to save life on Earth. Well, what, what would happen in that event is not just a shift in, again, the scale at which the state or government or hegemony is operating, but actually a qualitative shift in the subject position of the one who's represented by that state. Uh, the political would have adapted so that now what is being maintained and regulated by the state, or disciplined and punished if you prefer, is not an individual citizen or subject of a nation, but a human being who is a member of a living community on earth. Now, mechanically, what does that look like? Well, even short of 2038, I think it's quite likely to come before then, uh, we will have arrived at such a scenario when, for instance, a group of elites from different parts of the world come together and affirm and grant the right for scientists to begin experimenting with uh, solar radiation management. And we say that that would be kind of a limit test to define whether we've had planetary sovereignty come into existence in the book, because if you think about it, the decision to begin that experiment would affect all life on Earth, but would also be justified in that name. And that would mark a clear shift from the forms of hegemony we associate with the territorial nation-states we sometimes call Hobbesian. And just to, d to define that term for a second, you're, you're, what you're talking about is what's, what's often called solar geoengineering, right, where you uh, suspend some particles in the atmosphere to reflect some sunlight back at the sun, and therefore the Earth is a little bit cooler than it would be otherwise, right? Right. So solar radiation management refers to the idea that we can put some particulate matter into the atmosphere, probably uh, around... Uh, zero degrees latitude, that's the middle of the Earth, and the idea would be you reflect the sun's rays back into space before they even become part of the atmosphere. Obviously, that wouldn't um, change the ongoing changes to the atmosphere that humans are causing by burning fossil fuels, but in theory, what it would do is the same thing a large volcano does when uh, it, it erupts, like in the case of uh, Mount Pinatubo. You put enough of that particulate matter in the atmosphere, you reflect enough of the sun's radiation away from the Earth before it even becomes part of the Earth's uh, uh, climate system, and you basically are turning the thermostat back down by, let's say, one degree Celsius. Uh, when this rolls out, uh, it will be justified in the name of, I, I repeat, saving life on Earth or trying to buy us time so that we can do something to save species and save poor people and so forth and so on. But obviously, even if it was uh, carried out by an individual state, it would involve acting in the name of everybody on Earth. And in that way, it is a kind of different sort of sovereignty than what we're accustomed to. A lot of the talk about global coordinated action has focused around mitigation and then also solar radiation approach. And I wondered how you saw carbon capture playing into that. I mean, for our listeners, this is, you know, basically huge plantations of machines that will suck carbon out of the atmosphere. So while it would be much more expensive than so anything having to do with um, solar ra radiation, it would also not just be temporary. Um, and for that reason, I personally, I can see it becoming a sort of part of a capitalist bargain where we, we set aside some trillions of dollars every year to just neutralize all of the emissions that the, the um, industrial system is putting out rather than dealing with the direct problem of that industrial activity. And it's since it is more expensive, it imposes more of a cost on, on the elites and everybody else. But I wondered how it fits into your thinking. Does it seem more plausible, less plausible to you than an approach based on solar radiation? How do you how do you see carbon capture fitting into the picture? 
We don't have a lot to say about carbon capture and storage, if I'm completely frank with you. I mean, in the book, it pops up twice, I believe. Both times, I think we say in so many words that it will be the lifeblood or part of the core of a climate leviathan, uh, precisely for the reasons you're describing. It seems like a way to buy time. You know, if you could uh, create some really big machines that suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere and turn them into something inert and stable that you can bury in the earth, then why not do it on a vast scale? But as I'm sure you know, uh, we don't really have right now the technical means to do this on a really vast scale. That doesn't mean it won't change. It doesn't mean a lot more money won't go into it, but it's just not something we've seen. What is, of course, uh, a really significant related phenomenon in the world right now is afforestation or tree planting. I mean, a tree is a uh, living being that sucks carbon in the atmosphere and puts it into an inert form. And, of course, trees do a lot of other wonderful things, too. And so from uh, around the early to mid-1990s, there's been a big push to support uh, carbon and capture and storage, essentially in the form of forests. And uh, this led to the so-called RED program. Now it's R-E-D-D+. And uh, that program has been rightly criticized by a lot of people, who some of whom we cite in the book, because the way it's been rolled out has been essentially like a top-down global capitalist uh, core strategy to uh, justify its continued burning of carbon emissions and basically insisting that the world's tropical forests uh, are preserved in the name of extending our ability to uh, maintain society as we want. But that doesn't mean that tree planting could only be done in the climate leviathan way that it's being done now with Red Plus. It's really easy to imagine uh, communities autonomously organizing themselves in different ways to defend the carbon that's in their soil and their forests and to do so in a way that emphasizes dignity, social justice, and local autonomy. And that's basically what we see all around the world happening in some of those movements that Jeff was referring to and that we take hope from. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the idea of a group of elites or maybe even one individual crazy billionaire um, initiating a solar radiation management program as a sort of marker um, on the road toward climate leviathan. I wonder if you guys have other, other sort of markers, other things that would indicate we're heading down the path that you are predicting, or if there are other paths and, and how we would know we were going down those paths. I think I can speak for Joel again when I say that we do see solar, solar radiation management and the sort of geoengineering techno fix as something that is perhaps particularly appealing to the trajectory that we would describe as a capitalist climate leviathan. But in the book, as you know, we actually do talk about uh, a couple of other paths um, that we see as not necessarily uh, unimportant, even if we think at this point less likely. And we describe, as I mentioned earlier, something like Climate Mao, uh, a non-capitalist claim to planetary sovereignty, either through, through China, but perhaps through other existing nation states or uh, coordinated mechanisms. And we also talk about something that we call climate behemoth, which right now I think seems to make a lot of sense to people because it describes a reactionary, uh, anti-planetary sovereignty, hyper-capitalist kind of isolationism. And uh, it, it involves occasionally, and it does right now, uh, the, the problem of climate denialism. And we can see it when we first started the book. We, we saw it, you know, in the, the sort of drill baby drill chanting in the American elections of a couple of cycles past. But now, of course, it seems, I'm not sure Joel and I at all anticipated the extent to which it might be uh, sort of caricatured in the Trump administration. Um, and, and that is a path that I don't think Joel or I maybe anticipated reaching its 
zenith so so quickly, but I also think we both would describe that as inevitably a temporary, if incredibly damaging, political path. And then the final one we describe is is the one that is the most difficult to have envisioned. But it, we 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 name it climate X, uh, partly because we're we're not sure what it would look like, but it would be uh, it would be coordinated around a group of people who, as I mentioned in the opening of the show, would be people who refused to see the current order as the only way forward, and were willing to uh, consider alternatives beyond not just our current economic organization, but also uh, around our current political organization, which is effectively entirely organized around a zero-sum game of territorial nation-states that sometimes coordinate and sometimes don't, and have completely and utterly failed uh, to address uh, the problem of climate change. And w would you do us the favor of analyzing the Paris Agreement in terms of these categories? So this was a, a sort of voluntary cooperative arrangement um, with no enforcement mechanism, but in other ways um, seems to sort of point to a single planetary and yet capitalistic approach to addressing climate change. Let's start with just clarifying what the Paris Agreement says. Uh, on a positive note, the preamble reduces the, the, the target, the goal, uh, from 2 to 1.5 degrees Celsius. I've mentioned that already. Uh, but as you mentioned in your question, its its great problem is that although it promises severe carbon mitigation promptly to reach that target, the actual pathways by which such mitigation will come about are left uh, fairly well undefined. They rely on what are called the national determined pathways to arrive at those reductions, and those are um, not enforceable at present by the Paris Agreement. Uh, all that was much commented upon at the time. Um, but that's not really all that was discussed in Paris. I mean, there are other parts of it as well besides mitigation. The Paris Agreement also essentially begins the process of establishing an international law around carbon, uh, excuse me, climate change adaptation. And that's really what Jeff and I would like to emphasize. In a sense, we're saying just because the Paris Agreement isn't a strong binding carbon mitigation agreement doesn't mean it isn't an important event in the, in the history of international law and sovereignty with respect to adaptation. It's also, by the way, worth noting that a lot of what was being negotiated in Paris behind the scenes concerned money or finance. Essentially, developing countries were asking the rich countries that caused the problem for money, a firm commitment on what they call loss and damage. A firm commitment, that is, that when, uh, when for instance, islands in the Caribbean are hit by hurricanes that are more powerful than before because of climate change, that they can turn to the rich countries of the world and get money to help rebuild. And by the way, the, the rich countries were generally not interested in making a firm commitment on loss and damage. It's in the text, but it's not a firm commitment. So having said all that, it's really hard to say right now where the Paris talks are going. I think it's a, it's a bit like what the world system looked like in the climate negotiations as the Kyoto Protocol was breaking apart. I mean, everyone was saying, well, we need Kyoto 2.0, but at that point, the United States was governed by uh, executive that had no interest in helping it come into existence. So, But negotiations continued nonetheless, and they eventually led to the Paris Agreement. Similarly, right now, ostensibly the Trump administration has pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement, but in actual fact, the U.S. continues to go and negotiate each year at the UNFCCC. In fact, the diplomatic team is still led by the same person who was involved in those negotiations under Obama. So it's not really like Paris is gone, it's just that it's not advancing in quite the same way and direction that it was 
previously. But we we think that if you look at the logic of capitalism and the logic of the elites, everything points in the direction of greater and greater international coordination uh, because the alternative is essentially uh, much more serious conflict and much more serious violence and war. And at a certain point, that becomes a problem for the stability of the world system needed to maintain capital accumulation. So the sort of worst case Mad Max full dystopia scenario, you guys think um, it's t- it, it people can't make enough money off of it, basically. I mean, am I putting it in too crude terms? No, you're you're neither Joel or I would want to write it off entirely because that would that would be to claim we know something we don't know. But uh, yes, we both think that that uh, the people who are making those predictions have not thought very much about how bad that would be for capital. <laughs> yeah. And you never want to bet against capital. Exactly. <laughs> and history would suggest that it'd be a stupid bet. <laughs> well, so in the hopes of sort of ending on a somewhat more hopeful note, I, I was wondering if you guys could sketch out, and I know that you're hesitant to, but I, I'm just interested in a totally speculative way, um, like what a what a climate X scenario would be that you guys would feel sort of the most, um, well, the most hopeful about, I guess. Um, well, I, I think the first thing that, that, that I would want to emphasize uh, is that uh, it wouldn't be a scenario. I, I, not to suggest that you were trying to say it would be one thing, but I do really feel like one of the main things that Joel and I want to emphasize is that the hope that we see, and it's not that we don't see have any hope or see any hope, is not in, necessarily in some you know reverse leviathan, coordinated uh, uh, or directed, I should say, global movement that somehow coordinates the, the actions of all social justice concerns across the planet. I think we both think that X will take many, many forms, and the forms will be very specific to the places and times and histories of those those movements. And I, th- I think that the evidence is that the, the, the really effective action on climate right now is actually happening at many different scales. It's not all local, though local matters a great deal, but the, it, a lot of it is happening around people who aren't paying attention to where the old institutional or political borders were supposed to matter or supposed to fix. And so we're seeing local movements, we're seeing movements at the, at the level of the city, we're seeing uh, large-scale peasant uh, movements across the developing world. So we're seeing the possibility of a variety of responses that effectively, the one thing they share is a rejection of some sort of wholehearted faith in the capacity of a capitalist-led state to fix this for us. We're seeing people take on the, the task of at whatever scale they feel like they can make a difference, take on the task of approaching the world in a different way. And, and so it's a multiplicity of scenarios, and some of them will be very tightly connected, and some of them won't be. Um, and the hope is that we will you know, eventually learn quickly to cultivate and nurture these movements wherever we see them happening. Um, that is the task, is to cultivate and nurture and encourage and, and, and speak out for. Uh, those movements wherever they are and it, it to the extent that they're successful then climate x is beginning to be realized but uh, can i just add in passing too that uh i think we made it 45 minutes before anyone mentioned mad max <laughs> i'm going to say that i think that was max that did that <laughs> it seems to come up all the time it's worth observing that unless i haven't seen the movie in like 20 years but if i recall the story is the dystopian landscape post-apocalyptic and there's a lone uh, individual heroic figure who is an uh, ex-cop running around trying to avenge a uh, murder and, 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 and make justice prevail in this uh, extreme landscape. And uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's notable that we lack uh, a, a real wide variety of reference points for imagining 
the world that we're going into with climate change. Because I mean, it isn't just this question. It comes up a lot, this Mad Max reference. And it's, a, it's, it's the wrong reference point. We need something other than bad Hollywood movies to give us a sense of what both dystopia and utopia might look like. And if our book has done anything to uh, contribute to the breadth of our collective imagination and thinking about where the world might go, then I think Jeff and I would feel like we contributed something useful. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks a lot, guys, for having us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So, David, how credible did you find Jeff and Joel's predictions? Well, I think taken in total, it's sort of hard to argue with any of their um, perspective. Um, I guess, the, you know, the big question is how likely it is that we end up in a world that's dominated by a climate leviathan system versus one that has that element in play, but also other elements in play. Um, personally, I don't think it's all that likely that some true new planetary sovereign is established in the name of climate change that um, really diminishes the meaning of national sovereignty. I think it's much more likely that we see an empowered UN or some UN-like body taking care of climate, but in the name of the nations that are its members. But that may just be quibbling. Basically, I do think that it's impossible to solve this totally all-enveloping global challenge in any way but globally. And that means that unless we're going to all die, um, that it will require some kind of cooperative network, probably with some enforcement mechanism. Um, and maybe that enforcement mechanism is military. Yeah. I mean, I wonder right now is a particularly difficult moment to sort of look and say that humanity will unify in some coherent way or not humanity really the elites will unify in some coherent way to tackle the problem of climate change um because that's where the money is more or less because because they want to keep the gears of capital moving and i say that not because i don't buy that that's a good reason that this will happen but because the last few years have seen the rise of let's say the rise of ultra-right nationalism around the world has made it to me a kind of interesting question about how much capital still is able to hold some level of sway over the doings of nation states and the ability the the, the willingness of nation states to arrogate their sovereignty um which is like i guess all a long way of saying that like i i think that their reasoning is really sound um and i i don't like there's a good chance that sort of the 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 trumpism brexitism kind of um uh, moment is a is a brief one that I guess what they would call the climate behemoth is a brief one that's going to uh, sort of move out of the way in favor of something closer to what they describe as climate leviathan but it actually is sort of hard for me to wrap my head around in that way like I actually have a little bit of trouble kind of imagining the what it means in practical terms or in a step-by-step -step way yeah and I mean if you if you think that you know as I do anyway that a huge part of the populist moment the that we're living through is the result of um, the Syrian ref refugee crisis and, and what that meant for Europe. Um, you know, the UN projects that we're probably going to see at least 10 times as many climate refugees as that by 2030, possibly as many as 100 times as many by 2050. Some of, the, some of those estimates are probably too high, but we're looking at major, major, major um, refugee crisis, global refugee crisis. And, you know, there's a they were actually quite optimistic and thinking like, oh, well, we'll codify this in some way. It will be it will, it will have to be codified. Another way of looking at it is that the countries are just going to turn their backs on those people. And, um, you know, the last few years don't give us much hope. I mean, the countries that are 
continuing to open their doors in even a small way are, um, you know, seeing huge pushback from their um, from their populations. And it's sort of hard to imagine that continuing um, or, you know, sort of in a, in a world where there are many more refugees trying to find f- new homes. Um, and then when I look at the, you know, just the, the economic numbers, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that the IPCC thinks that if we get to 3.7 degrees of warming, there'll be economic costs to climate change of $500 trillion, which is more wealth than exists in the world today. I saw another study the other day that said that um, by the end of the century, if we don't do anything to bend the emissions curve, that um, these climate impacts will be costing $18 trillion a year globally. Um, so on the one hand, you can look at those numbers and say, well, if it only costs $3 trillion a year to suck all the carbon out of the atmosphere, then some capitalistic cabal is going to make that deal. On the other hand, you can look at those numbers and say, how could capitalism, how could a system devoted to the accumulation of capital possibly survive that assault when the world looks around and sees the damage that's been done by, um, depending on how you look at it, several centuries, a century, 50 years, 25 years of rapid um, industrial growth, how will we conscience continuing down that path? And I think the sort of dilemma there is especially acute when you think about, you know, all these charts that these optimists like Steven Pinker like to talk about showing um, the massive growth in the global middle class over the last 30 years. All these people pulled out of poverty, so much less um, infant mortality. All that stuff is, has been like one of the amazing and kind of they're right underreported stories of these last couple decades, but it's been powered totally by the industrialization of those countries. And so really, like, the whole idea of um, meaningful, dramatic economic growth, as we've understood it over the last couple of decades, has been predicated on fossil fuels. And when we start to see the the damages that that's done, I, I don't know, I just have a hard time seeing um, the capitalistic system as we know it endure. On the other hand, like everybody else who lives on this planet, I don't really see a viable alternative either. Yeah. So it's just hard to like, it's hard to see any future really. Well, I mean, this is why climate X is the, is the sort of both the the least likely and also the most mystical and also the, the, the most desired scenario because it requires you to think, because you know, Leviathan and Behemoth certainly, and even Mao to some extent, as I understand it, are predicated on some level of, um, emissions focused growth let's say as as a component of the kind of future world order or whatever and it's only it's it, like what's interesting about it to me at least as i as i understood our conversation and as i understand these theories is that you know there's that famous i think it's frederick jameson who said it's like easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism and this sort of connects not disconnects capitalism so deeply to um carbon emissions which is correct as far as i know and this i mean as far as i believe that um that like it's also almost impossible to imagine a world order that does not have carbon emissions as like a as an underlying foundational component of what it means to be to live in a society and to be human or whatever and so like you know i mean there's like the sort of hippie version of it where we imagine ourselves or i guess it's really like the fight club primitivist like you know we're all gonna be we, we could have a society where we all live off the land in one way or another but um 
I mean, it's just as a thought exercise, it's very difficult to think like, how do you have a, a globe of 7 billion people plus, um, and how do you have them all live at a standard of living that we know is possible, you know, in one way or another without, in a way that also doesn't destroy the planet here and there? I mean, I guess that's the existential question of the human race over the next several centuries. Well, I think, yeah, and the, I, yeah, uh, but I think that there is, um, I mean, I, you know, the, the green energy technology is is basically there. Yeah, it's just a matter of it's just so hard to, you know, rebuild the infrastructure. Um, it's probably going to take much longer than we have. Um, but you know, there there have been studies that show that you know if we even do the really really rapid decarbonization that the IPCC suggests, which sounds so painful, um, we'd be saving ourselves twenty six trillion dollars a year. Um, and you know, it's the kind of thing where it's like, it's a massive upfront investment, but like, you know, it's, it'll be paying out very dramatically within a decade's time. Um, that seems like, you know, a bargain that collectively we should be taking, Yeah. which like, I don't know if we, if we should like skip over to terror, but like, I find personally like the idea of a, they find the idea of a climate leviathan scary and unappealing. And I, as like someone with lefty sympathies, I, I sort of understand that. I also feel like, well, that would be great if like there was a, if there was like one dominant system that could just like dictate how everybody was like living, that would just solve the problem. That would be like, and that, like, I'm all for that. Um, I mean, I have to say the 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 idea of somebody standing up in front of you know future UN and saying you know we have to protect all of humanity to which we all belong sounds frankly right now in this global environment fantastic. Yeah, totally. Like, give me that, please, any day of the week. But is there? I mean, the, can you even think of like a global leader who would like think who talks in those terms? No, no, yeah. and it's I don't see anybody sort of rising to the occasion by any means. It seems, especially in an age of Donald Trump at, at, as at the helm of the U.S., it seems like the you know the global figure who's most likely to play that role is Xi Jinping. He's like he's an authoritarian, and uh, he has like four times as many people in the U.S. And he's like sees his as Bruno told us in the previous episode, like really sees um, his nation as owning the future and um, sees technology as empowering and to the future of China. Um, but that's a lot to put on one man and it's certainly possible that China sees its, you know, in just crude nationalistic terms, sees its, um, interests, uh, somewhat differently than we would like them to see them. Yeah. And certainly one thing I took away from, um, our conversation with Bruno was that, uh, China is less inclined to have the kind of, uh, as in, as a nation state right now, it's less inclined to have the kind of, um, humanist universalist kind of attitude that allows you to have a politics of global life or whatever not that i not that i actually think the chinese state would be writing off india or whatever but that that the relationship between each nation state is not so equitable as we might like it to be in some dream scenario like this Thank you very much to Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright for sharing their prediction with us today. Their book, Climate Leviathan, is available now. To hear more, subscribe to 2038 and check us out at nymag.com slash 2038.
This podcast was produced by Fanny Co. in association with New York Magazine. Our editor-in-chief is Adam Moss, and our editor is David Haskell. Recording services by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. I'm David Wallace-Wells. That's Max Reed. See you in the future.